Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. So the town hall for Congressman Doug LaMalfa here in the 1st District of California has just wrapped up. You can see him in the background speaking to constituents. He did go for over two hours, so I have to give him some credit for that. He also selected a large venue, so there weren't people turned away, as we've seen with town halls in the past before Republicans. So give him some credit. Um, the emphasis among questioners and commenters was undoubtedly health care. That was the single most discussed issue been probably followed by climate change and environmental policy. There was only one question, mercifully, that was Russia-related. Uh, otherwise, it was fairly substantive. I noticed a lot of people were reading from pre-prepared remarks, so take from that what you will. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. After a wave of strong bipartisan opposition, after being stayed by two federal courts, the administration is still pushing its flawed Waters of the United States regulatory expansion. However, this week, the Senate will finally consider rejecting this regulatory overreach. While the administration describes their plan as a minor clarification, it is in fact the most sweeping expansion of federal regulatory authority in our nation's history. Mr. Speaker, this map of my home state of California demonstrates exactly how far the EPA's proposal would, met, would reach. Fully 95% of California, here depicted in black, would fall under EPA jurisdiction, though you'll notice that the city of San Francisco in white does not. That's because San Francisco, the source of so much of this excessive, excessive regulatory mindset, long ago paved over every waterway in the city. And who knows what's in the runoff rainwater flowing off the streets of that city. with David Peterson, who is a progressive candidate running in California's District 1. Welcome, David. How are you? Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I've listened to your podcast, and I am amazed at some of the fantastic coverage you have nationwide. Oh, well, that's kind of awesome to hear. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your district. It is in Northern California, so it's uh, Nevada City, uh, Chico City, Redding. Um, it's a, it covers a large geographical area, and the area is pretty much a red area, which um, is going to be tough for you or maybe not. Uh, so your district went plus 20 for Trump in the general, but I think many of the reasons underlying that are economic and not based in ideology, meaning that these are folks that are making less money, um, have increased cost of living, are frustrated with where they're at, not sure of who to blame. So um, they're never going to vote for what I would call a corporate Democrat or established Democrat. But I do think that some of these folks, folks can be swayed to vote for a progressive like yourself. Have you noticed when you've been out canvassing that there's um, a change in attitudes, they're receptive to the idea of Medicare for all, having higher minimum wages and the like? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, in the 11 counties that are within Congressional District 1, 10 of them went for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary. 
And that's significant. That's huge. Um, so there's a lot of people in the district who recognize the progressive value, the progressive message, and that when progressive candidates come forward, they have a long list of legislative actions of things that they're going to do specifically to improve our lives, the lives of everybody in the state and across the country versus when they look over at more of the corporate establishment Democratic candidates, it's more along the lines of, okay, they raised a lot of money and they've got a lot of corporate donors and a lot of financial backing, but they only talk to the issues. They mention what the issues are and they say that they understand. They don't take commitment to specifically do anything about it and so they hedge their bets and they step back and they're completely non-committal. And absolutely, throughout the district, that is heavily recognized and it's completely an issue for everyone. Um, frankly, the voters in the district, they see the corporate establishment Democrats as just as corrupt as the corporate establishment Republicans. And that you're absolutely right. They will not yeah. support, they will not vote for establishment Democrats on a whole, on the majority. I mean, obviously, within the district, there's people that, you know, oh, well, that's excusable, that's fine, it's okay that, you know, Anthony Rendon, you know, backed off okay. on Medicare for all, you know, nation, for the entire state of California. And that's just one, right? That's just one representative that they were able to slip over to the corporate right. side and, and, you know, block the entire SB 562 Medicare for All in California. It's amazing. Yeah. Speaking of, I feel like, you know, the DCCC has been coming in and uh, tipping the scale with candidates. Have you noticed uh, any progressives getting kind of sucked into the money and maybe they started out as Bernie Kratz and now they're running more as establishment type candidates because of the money they've been influenced? The influence is constant and never-ending. The establishment Democrats push, push, push for all mm -hmm. of the candidates to focus on nothing but raising money, raising money, hiring their preferred political consultants, and then let the political right. consultants take over the campaign. You know, they'll tell you what to say. They'll give you the talking points. Don't make any commitments on any legislative action. Keep it as benign as possible. We'll give you all the safe things to say. And they restrict, mm -hmm. frankly, they, they restrict who the candidates can talk to. They limit their exposure. It's completely mm -hmm. a dominating force. Right. Now, you also ran for Congress previously in District 12, which is uh, Pelosi's district. What are the different challenges that you're experiencing now? Because obviously, um, District 12 is very, very liberal compared to uh, District 1. Well, I think that's the constant, right? The progressive yeah. effort, the progressive campaign, whether you're fighting the for Democrats or the corporate Republicans, you know, the message is the same. It's 1% versus the 99%. So that's right. a constant. Um, and, you know, that race, um, Speaker or Leader Pelosi is absolutely the most responsive incumbent that we've ever challenged. I mean, she mm -hmm. backed off on TPP, which is yeah. a secret backroom trade deal uh, across the Pacific. 
here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we return to our exclusive interview with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, I spoke to him inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London on Monday. Julian Assange, let's stay with the United States for a moment, with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which certainly doesn't only involve the United States. But there's a huge debate within the United States about it right now. And I dare say um, uh, some of that debate is as a result of what, what WikiLeaks revealed. For some people, this treaty that will determine 40 percent of the global economy, the only thing that we have seen about it comes from WikiLeaks. Explain what the TPP is and the information that you got, that you put out about this top secret agreement. Well, the, the TPP uh, is an international treaty uh, that has 29 different chapters. Uh, we have released four of them, um, and we are trying to get um, the remainder. Uh, it's uh, for the information that has been released through uh, the chapters that we got hold of uh, and through some congressmen who have seen uh, the contents of some of the others, but they are not allowed to write it down. They can go into a room and look at it. They can go into a room. It has been, it's not formally classified, but it's been treated as if it was classified in terms of how the information is being managed. Um, they go into a room. Uh, if they try and take notes, the notes have to be handed over to the government for safekeeping. And of course, congressmen under those situations won't take notes. Uh, so it is very, um, well guarded from the press and a majority of people and even from uh, congressmen. But 600 uh, US companies are part of the process and have been given access to various uh, parts of the TPP. Okay, so <clears throat> it's a the largest ever um, international economic treaty that has ever been um, negotiated. Uh, very considerably larger than NAFTA. It is mostly not about trade. Uh, only five of the 29 chapters um, are about traditional trade. The others are about regulating the internet, uh, what internet, internet service providers have to collect information, they have to hand it over to companies under certain circumstances. It's about regulating labor, uh, what labor conditions can be applied, regulating um, whether you can favour uh, local industry, uh, regulating um, the hos hospital healthcare system, privatisation of hospitals. Uh, so essentially every aspect of a modern economy, uh, even banking services, are in the TPP. And so that is erecting and embedding a new ultra-modern neoliberal structure in US law and in the laws of the other countries that are participating and it's putting in a treaty form. And by putting in a treaty form, that means with uh, 14 countries involved, uh, it means it's very, very hard to overturn. So if there's a desire, a democratic desire in the United States uh, to go down a different path, uh, for example, to introduce more public transport, uh, then you can't easily change the TPP treaty, because you have to go back and get agreement of the other nations involved. Um, now, looking at that example, what if um, 
the government does, or a, um, a state government decides it wants to build a, a hospital somewhere uh, and there's a private hospital has been erected nearby. Well, the TPP gives the constructor of the private hospital the right to sue the government over the expected, the loss in expected future profits. This is expected future profits. This is not an actual loss that has been sustained uh, with a desire to be compensated. This is a claim about the future. And we know from similar uh, instruments where governments can be sued over free trade treaties um, that that is used to construct a chilling effect on environmental and health regulation law. Um, for example, uh, Togo, Australia, um, Uruguay, all being su sued um, by tobacco companies, Philip Morris, uh, the leading one, um, to prevent them from introducing health warnings uh, on the cigarette packets. That we have in the United States on our own cigarette packages. Yes. And it's, it's not even even playing field. Let's say you say, okay, well, we're going to make it easier for companies to sue the government. Maybe that's right. Maybe the government is too powerful and companies should have a right to sue the government under various circumstances. But it's only multinationals that get this right. U.S. companies operating purely in the U.S. Um, in relation to investments that happen in the U.S. will not have this right. Whereas large um, companies that are multinationals that have registrations overseas can structure things such that they're taking an investment in the U.S. and that then gives them the right uh, to sue the government over it. Now, it's not so easy to get up these cases and win them. Um, however, um, the chilling effect, the concern um, that there might be such a case is severe. Uh, each one of these cases, on average, governments spend more than $10 million for each case to defend it, even successfully. So if you have you know, a city council or a, a state considering legislation, and then there's a threat uh, from one of these multinationals about expected future profits, um, they know that even if they have the law on their side, even if this TPP is on their side, um, they can expect to suffer. Which is the wrong direction to go. All trade deals should be open to the public and for viewing. We should know what the negotiation points are, what everybody's asking for and what they finally mm -hmm. resolve on. It's not the type of thing that corporations should be doing in the back room and spoon feeding to their shills to make the deal. Um, mm -hmm. When individual corporations have the right to sue governments because they didn't make enough profit in the market in the last quarter, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculousness, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, another thing that uh, um, Nancy Pelosi stepped back on was putting boots on the ground in Syria. And that's huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, she campaigned for five days straight. There's, you know, big articles about how hard she tried. You know, we need to get, you know, invasion force here and boots on the ground and sacrifice human lives. And we need to have another, you know, 11-year war because we haven't had enough of those recently. She backed off. She gave it up. And that's huge. Um, and then she also restored the 1994 Employment Non-Discrimination Act was something that the... Uh, Alice Kutoklas Democratic Club asked for, and mm -hmm. they put it on my campaign. So, I mean, that's, I've been doing legislative advocacy for 15 years. So net neutrality, TPP, you know, uh, stop the blockade around Iran back in 2008. Um, right. <clears throat> the Affordable Care Act, obviously, which, you know, the opposition said as soon as we pass it, 
we're going to go bankrupt. That didn't happen. And that's one of the reasons, you know, going back to what you said earlier, that's one of the reasons that so many voters on both sides are saying, hey, we didn't go bankrupt on, a, on the Affordable Care Act. And I've got family members or myself that are benefiting from it. So, yeah, let's mm-hmm. go all the way to Medicare for all. So people are getting that message. 600 Democrats running for Congress nationwide, every single one of them supporting Medicare for all. Thank you, Bernie Sanders, for helping us make it a national issue. And, you know, going yeah. back to challenging incumbents and working on legislative action, if you don't make it an election issue, they ignore you. They don't hear you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to do. That's why you have to challenge the incumbents at election time to move forward and do the right thing, because otherwise they're just paying attention to their donors. So that's, David, that's a really interesting point you're making. So when you challenged Nancy Pelosi, um, it moved her left because you're obviously progressive. And now you're challenging uh, the incumbent in your district who is a Republican and also moving him left, I'm assuming. So even if you don't win an election, it's sort of a win if you're able to do that very thing because at the end of the day, it's all about pushing policy in our direction. I, I don't want to give up on anything here because <clears throat> progressives are winning nationwide. Yeah, we are have now. a sure. huge challenge to overcome mm-hmm. the corporate Democrats. But if they do and they get a win, then they go head to head in November. And, and I don't want to give yeah. up anything. Absolutely, I want to win. Hey, in 2016, in the primary, we broke records right here in Congressional District 1. of all the voters in this district voted against Doug LaMalfa. That's huge. Right. It was four Republicans, two Democrats running in the race, but that matters. That means that each of those voters realized, hey, we can do better. Problem is, Mm -hmm. the day after the election, the corporate Democrat, uh, Jim Reed, (laughs) he turns to me and he says, hey, I don't need you and all your progressive supporters. Forget you. Go away. And then he turns (sighs) to Joe Montez on the Republican side, who got almost as many votes as he did, and he says, hey, I don't need you either. And so he goes on to November, and he lost by more in November than he did in 2012. The voters are learning to recognize the difference between a progressive who's got a long list of legislative action forms and a corporate establishment Democrat who just, you know, they tell their own personal story, and they want you to fall in love with them, and They'll talk right. about your issues and the, they tell you they understand. But then when it comes time to actually making a commitment, signing pledges, moving forward, saying this is the direction that we need to go to fix our federal government. These are solutions. This is my list. They don't go there. They just they step back from that. That's not, that's not what they do. Right. So it's interesting because he said he didn't need the progressives and he lost. He clearly needed the progressives. And it seems to me this is sort of echoing the same thing that happened with the Clinton campaign. They all said we don't need the Bernie people, you know, with such hubris. And it turned out they did. And then they, my, my, my favorite part of the scenario, though, is when they turn around and then blame the people they said they didn't need for losing the election. <laughs> it's like you, you don't have it both ways. They clearly need progressive voices. They clearly need progressive voters. And the DNC, the DCCC, all the other entities need to start listening to that fact because a lot of these seats that they're winning, I think they're renting them. They're not actually winning them. You know, Doug Jones, for example, he barely squeaked by a pedophile. Yep. And, I, you know, everybody thinks that this is a huge win. I'm like, that is not a huge win. If he's up against a stronger candidate the next time, he probably will lose. But what happens is, 
progressives stay home if they don't like the candidates. It's really that straightforward. You can see it in the data. So we have to start listening. Stop listening to the donor base and start listening to the voters. I think if we start running great candidates across the board, um, we're going to start flipping more seats. You know, we've lost we've lost our edge now. The latest polling data that's coming out does not have the Democrats uh, in the lead for 2018, and it's the first time that's happened this week. Uh, Democrats have been uh, touting a so-called blue wave to the 2018 midterm elections, insisting that Democrats will take back control of Congress and the Senate. However, brand new Axios poll shows otherwise. Let me introduce you to the deputy news editor of Axios, Alexi McCammon, joins us live. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. You know, uh, the mainstream media, they've been talking all about a blue wave, right? Right, right. So this suggests that it might be harder for Democrats to take back the Senate. They're defending 10 states that Trump won in 2016. And our poll shows that if the 2018 election were held today, five Democratic senators would lose to Republicans. Okay. So hopefully, um, hopefully they hear. Don't believe any poll that you didn't participate in. It's amazing <laughs> how loaded the questions are, how much oh, sure. they're pushing you in a certain direction. They frame things just so to get a certain answer. The only poll oh, that really sure. matters is the election day poll. And of all the candidates, I'm the only one that has a message right there in the ballot all about my candidacy so that when they're filling it out and after they get past, you know, the 32 people that are running for senator and 18 people running for governor and they get bored and there are only, you know, seven candidates running for um, Congress, I differentiate myself right there, and I, you know, that's mm -hmm. done early on, way back in March, and it's something that none of the candidates have stepped up to. I mean, I, I reached out to every other candidate and said, "Hey, you know, let's work together, and you adopt my policies, I'll adopt yours. What are your greatest ideas?" And they dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They didn't take advantage of that. I mean, um, that's one of the things that way back in 2007, Senator then Senator Barack Obama did really well. He adopted all of the best policies of the Kucinich campaign, and he started mm -hmm. gaining their supporters, and he adopted the best policies of Bill Richardson, and he started getting their supporters. That's a winning strategy. The voters and the campaign and the key issues are important to that election. If you adopt it and make it your own and move forward, that's a winning strategy. Yeah, I don't, David, I don't disagree with that. I think... Um I think it's something that the corporate Dems need to listen to because they don't, they say they want unity, but they don't. They want subjugation, and that's an entirely different thing. And progressives that's are really not going important. to subjugate themselves. You can't say yeah. that often enough. Every time mm -hmm. you say, hey, unity, 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 that's a good response. Is that what you want, or did you just want subjugation? Yeah, exactly. Because they're not listening. You know, if they, they keep, they should be staying out of primary elections, and they're not. They're trying to tip the scales, and all, especially here in California. Um, interestingly, though, the Dem challengers are out fundraising in the areas where you have GOP incumbents. Let me quote yeah. Bernie Sanders. Let me quote Bernie Sanders. Okay. The corporate establishment wins when money dominates the process. That's extremely important. I mean, nationwide, you see the congressional DCCC, Denny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi are all throwing their money at defeating progressives in this primary. They're working hard, really, really hard. The only defense that we have is for voters to start voting against candidates that bring big money into the election. The, and the, the candidates that bring that big money into the election, 
they are already beholden themselves to the corporate democratic machine. And they beholden themselves to the endorsement process, which the primary thing is, did you raise a lot of money? And then they start going soft on policy action because that's what comes down from on top. That's the demand. Back off on the policy improvements. Don't go there. And our greatest risk is that that's going to influence these people because it does influence them. And then we're going to lose Medicare for all. They only need one or two corporate Democrats in this round, and we may lose Medicare for all for a long time. We need to capture this pendulum swing of, you know, back to the um, liberal side to win this election. We can't afford to get more corporate Democrats in. It's super risky. And, it, you know, the pharmacy industry, the oil industry, the gas industry, they're putting huge monies in. And, yeah, they're switching. They're switching away from Republicans because Republicans have gone completely awry, and they're sponsoring the Democrats because as Democrats win, they want them in their back pocket just as much as they want the Republican incumbents in their back pocket. That's not up for debate, but what I'm suggesting is is the Bernie Sanders style of fundraising where you're raising directly from your constituents, small amounts. That's different. I don't see that as the same. And you can't run a campaign with zero dollars. I wish you could, but at some point you have to have some staff. You have to have you have, there has to be minimal amounts of money that going into your campaign. Well, we okay the, with, there's no, okay. the only candidates that are um, running their campaign like that are uh, myself, Marty. Lewis and Gregory. So the two big money candidates that are Democrats are heavily influenced by the Democratic machine and they're backing off on policy. We're losing them as progressives. They're converting them into corporate establishment Democrats. And And the only way to fight back is to vote against them. I mean, I want to do everything I can to bring them over and get them to be as progressive as possible. Hey, adopt my policies. Adopt Bernie Sanders' legislative agenda. Stick with it. Make commitments. Make pledges. Stay away from the establishment. Don't be going out right. and asking for backroom endorsements from all these organizations. Oh, they've got a big name. The California Labor Federation. I can't believe who they've endorsed. They endorsed Anthony Rendon. I mean, he's the yeah. guy that stopped Medicare for all, and they endorsed him. That's right. It, it, it's ridiculous. It's a bad it is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive, too, for unions to be doing that. But a lot of the unions, SEIU, for example, here in Southern California, have been backing non-Medicare for all candidates because it, in their minds of being very short-sighted, they think that it's better for their union membership to not have Medicare for all. But that's not necessarily true the, in the long the term. Greatest- Let me just say this one thing. I think it's going to take a, a change in union leadership because there well, are that's what areas I was going to say. Oh, okay. Let me word it a little differently. The greatest risk and impediment to unions and union workers today is their own leadership. Why? Because the number one thing that their leadership does is give money, and they give money to incumbents. If you want change, if you want improvement, stop giving money to GOP incumbents. Stop giving money to corporate establishment incumbents. It's ridiculous. What are they thinking? They are doing nothing to benefit their own constituents. And it's, it's complicated. It gets into the work that I do. I build financial mm-hmm. systems for Fortune 500 companies and help them to improve performance, improve productivity. But the last thing that happens is the distribution of the income 
and the workers at the bottom are getting ripped off and none of them are being represented by their unit, union. They need right. to take ownership. They need to do wildcat strikes. They need to abandon their union leadership, fire them all, hire some mm-hmm. brand new MBA out of school and say, hey, get in there and find our way to put our seats, put our representatives in the seats on the board of directors and the number one thing we need to do is be responsible for the compensation committee. Stop this institutionalized embezzlement of money flowing out the top to a couple of executives and divvy up the proceeds and the profits and the improved productivity on an equal fashion so that everybody benefits from them. None of this, you know, subcontracting out so you can move the labor even further away from the organizations that's making right. the money and ripping them all off. People need to stand up and fight. They're getting ripped off. It's as simple as that. Getting, yeah. You know, I was always ahead. disappointed to see SEIU when they came out and endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primary. I'm, I, I never understood that. Here you had a, Bernie who was fighting for a higher minimum wage, and Hillary saying, like, we can't do more than 13. Clearly, Bernie's your guy. Yeah. I, do, I still so, to this day do not understand what they were thinking when they did that. It was very disappointing. They are what you would call corporate unions. They're bought and paid yeah. for their own by the corporation. They do, they speak lip service to their membership and they do the bidding of the corporation. And until the workers figure that out and just kick them all out, they're not mm-hmm. going to make any progress whatsoever. They will be squeezed yeah. down to less and less and less, pushing them down into extreme poverty wages. Yeah, we need to reform union leadership. I'm a union member, and we've had battles within my union where I didn't like the leadership. We even had a Republican in office. It's like, these folks don't have our best interests. They're caving out to the employers as opposed opposed to fighting for the employee rights. I think that's definitely got some truth to it. So being in a red district, do you find that that the the words immigration reform are a bit of a dog whistle? Well, that's a dog whistle nationwide for all Republicans, so absolutely. Yeah. So are you finding that some of your, uh, some of the other folks in your race are using this as, as such? I mean, you know, we had this last week. ICE has lost track of 1,500 kids. I don't know how this happens. It's disgusting. Yet here we are. Um, and I, I'm not sure that... I, I a word a little bit about immigration reform because when I say immigration reform, I mean getting rid of ICE. I mean having some common sense way to have folks that have immigrated here that are working here in the country get citizenship. This, these are the things that I mean, but I don't know that if somebody that's leaning right hears that, they think, oh, good, they're going to build the wall. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So that's, I mean, it depends on the candidate who's presenting that issue. I mean, it's a dog whistle on the GOP side and you know, they're looking to, you know, rile up a xenophobic base. Um, and it's even more deceptive when you see a candidate on the Democratic side that says, oh, immigration reform, because it's ambiguous mm-hmm. and it leaves it out there yeah. for whoever's reading it. Oh, I don't know. Uh, they're going to do whatever I want them to do on reform. And it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that. And they're not making a commitment to anything. And it's entirely deceptive. But in a red district, it has the potential of, People that are, you know, wavering on the incumbents. Oh, well, he's kind of a crook. He's got, you know, $5 million worth of uh, subsidies that come down from the government, and he's just protecting that. Well, maybe I'll think of something else. Oh, look at this, immigration reform, you know. 
that's mm -hmm. just deceptive and it's a bad practice. And it's you know <laughs> yeah, something that the the political consultants are pushing for. Oh, put this mm -hmm. out. This is what you want to do. Uh, you know, this is you know ambiguous. This doesn't let people know what's gonna what's happening. You're you're it's a safe place to be. Put this as one of your talking points. Right. I feel like the most two ambiguous things that I'm seeing on some of the corporate dem websites is I report um, I support immigration reform with nothing else, or the other one is I support access to affordable health care. So clearly that's not the same thing as supporting Medicare for all. All Democrats nationwide. I haven't seen anybody that, that I've heard the hedge that you say access to health care, but it's pretty much, you know, Medicare for all single payers where we need to go. It's the only way that we're going to extend the gains that we've got from the Affordable Care Act, where in emergency rooms across the country, they've got less work. There's less mm -hmm. people coming in, staying home, waiting until it gets so bad they have no other choice but to go to the emergency. They're off going to the regular doctor, and they have insurance coverage, and so they're getting things fixed and taken care of. They have health care now. So extending that to everyone and moving away from private for profit health insurance and into Medicare single payer. It's the right direction to go and absolutely people recognize it. I mean, the majority of the people that will be voting in this twenty sixteen primary, they're on Medicare for all now. And they yeah. are strong and they're worried that that's going to be taken away from them because Paul Ryan mm -hmm. and many others in Washington DC have said, hey, we just did a $1.5 trillion tax cut for the corporations and our donors. We need to pay for that. So we're coming after Social Security and Medicare, and we're going to get that money back. And, and um, at least half of the voters are taking them seriously. Others, oh, well, it's mm -hmm. not going to affect me. It's definitely going to affect you if he comes after yeah. Medicare and Social or his predecessor since he's resigning. I mean, that's, that's how they want to do it. They want to squeeze the people at the bottom and take more money up to the top. Indeed. So I noticed that your favorite TV show is uh, West Wing, <laughs> which, which I love. I love some Aaron Corkin. The American people know how to spend their money better than the federal government does. President, your rebuttal. There it is. What the hell? He's got it. That's the ten-word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. Ten-word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next ten words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next ten words. How are we going to do it? Give me ten after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for 10 words. I'm the president of the United States, not the president of the people who agree with me. And by the way, if the left has a problem with that, they should vote for somebody else. I, what I find interesting about rewatching the West Wing series now is on Netflix, and I've been watching it again. You find yourself cringing because there are so many references to neoliberalism that was just sort of accepted at that time, the privatization. Like some of the things that he's arguing for and supporting as a quote-unquote progressive in the, in the show, you're just like, what? No. 
So I was going to ask you if any of that um, hit home and does it remind you of the DLC? And uh, are you familiar with the DLC with Bill Clinton and Patty Harriman back in the 90s when they were trying to move the party to the right? Yeah, that's what happened. And they succeeded at it. Um, They definitely gained a lot of corporate donations by moving in that direction. And now we're going back the other way and realizing that hey, along with every single dollar that comes in, there's influence. I mean, you know, down to the individual voters writing a two, $300 check or handing you money in cash, they are absolutely stating their preference. And that, you know, initially it becomes part of listening to your constituency and taking that to heart, consolidating the wishes of what people want, you know, and carrying that forward. That's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, but it's influential. So... You know, we want to consolidate everybody's wishes and we want to consolidate everyone's influence and vote and, and identify the constituencies um, among the masses. Um, but still, yeah, the money in politics is bad. And when it adds up and how that money is spent on specific advertising and um, goes towards the Democratic machine and the political consultants, it's a bad thing. I mean, in Florida, in the, or in, um, the DNC and um, that operation, <clears throat> in between elections, 95% of the money is simply going towards keeping a payroll of consultants on staff, and right. they have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the consultants so, are a real problem, too. Fortunately, the decision point for the majority of the voters in District 1, GOP voters, <clears throat> the decision points, they're recognizing, they know that the Democratic establishment is just as corrupt as the Republican establishment. And the, mm-hmm. the, only, the only vote, the only candidate that has a chance of beating LaMalfa in November is one that stands up to the establishment Democrats and stands up to the establishment Republicans and is progressive. That's the only way that they're going to give up their corrupt incumbent and move over to somebody new. They're not going to vote for an establishment Democrat. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care if they start handing out $20 bills before the November election. They're not going to move over and in that direction. The only one they're going to support is a progressive. I am the extreme progressive in this race. And yet, it's not about me. It's about my legislative action that I will champion and deliver for the constituents of this district, all of California, and Americans nationwide. That's what really matters. So your main um, competition, I guess, is Audrey Denny, um, who has been endorsed by Justice Democrats. Uh, What is your main policy differences with Audrey? Do you have any big ones? So my um, legislative action goes after the core elements of Washington, D.C. that are corrupt. And these mm-hmm. legislative actions will be highly disruptive to everything that's been going on for decades. And 435 incumbents in Congress, and no one addresses these issues. And it's huge. It's a huge list. And, you know, people know about these topics and they come up, but they're not asking us and they're not challenging us in this election to fix these problems. No money in politics. We've talked about that. But you don't get voters. You don't get the Democratic machine saying, hey, what can you do to help action happen and reduce money in politics? 
take the profit out of work profiteering. This goes to the mm-hmm. root cause of so many things that we do wrong and waste our money on. Bad policies, right down to genocide. I mean, we should not be paying for the economic disruption of other countries. It's nonsense. The Patriot Act, nobody's asking about it. Right. It's the only thing that was on the news for years. We yeah. pay for that still today. We pay a fortune for domestic spying. Nobody even knows mm-hmm. it. You hear about Facebook selling all your data. What about the fact that you have to pay to restore all your data from Facebook and Google and your phone company and your text messages in giant servers in farms that you pay for through the federal government? And it's ridiculous. It's a stupid program. I work in data management. It's the last thing you want to do is replicate your data. It's extremely expensive, and nobody's asking about it. Wall Street financial schemes, nobody's asking about it. It's crazy that no one in this country is asking, what can you do as a candidate for Congress to prevent Wall Street financial schemes? That's scary. Nobody remembers. Nobody's learned a thing. So these are topics that no other candidate is picking up, no incumbent in Congress. And it would be so disruptive to drop any single one of these items in the hopper and make it part of our legislative agenda to bring mm-hmm. that to national attention and make MSNBC start talking about some of these chronic, long-standing, decades-old problems that exist in our federal government. It's ridiculous. I, I would say that... Uh, um, the health care issue and not having Medicare for all is definitely in that category of a core problem with our federal government for a long time. Fortunately, Bernie Sanders has brought that one to the forefront, the Affordable Care Act, partway yeah. there in advance of that. But these are core issues. And why are we spending so much time? I mean, just, just moving from a Republican-led um, Congress to a Democratic-led Congress, and we will Get them to back off and end pilfering and stealing from Social Security and Medicare and making things. They're expanding the kleptocracy as fast as they can. And and fortunately, (laughs) voters get that. And and they're saying, you know, they're kleptocrats. They're stealing from us. I'm tired of it. They're lying to us. And they're definitely upset with Washington, D.C., But standing on the front porch and talking to these voters, it's still a leap for them to step over and hold the incumbent accountable. Right. Not sure that, well, he's our farm boy, he's our low, he's on our team, he's got our behind his name. Not sure if we want to kick him out. The other thing that is a core chronic issue in Washington, D.C. is green energy. And the thousands of laws that are blocking wind and solar and protecting the fossil fuel industry. And the only thing you get out of corporate establishment Democrats is, oh, climate change, climate change, climate change. They literally spent tens of millions of dollars speaking the word climate change and saying it's a problem and they understand it, and then doing nothing about it. Do nothing Mm -hmm. Congress, do nothing Democrats. That's our problem. We need people to do something, and the thing to do is, Get rid of the laws that protect the fossil fuel industry. It's that simple. Right. So we have, you know, we have solar company uh, tax credits here in the state. Uh, 
how, in what ways do they protect the fossil fuel industry? So the tax credits are mm-hmm. designed to benefit the high income earners. The only way you get the full tax credit is if you make over $300,000 a year. So the rest of us <laughs> folks, you know, that make forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, now you get a couple of hundred bucks off your taxes. But the solar mm-hmm. industry, they, oh, well, we'll fill out all the forms and you're going to get this massive tax credit and all this. Here you go. And you don't. You don't get the massive tax credit. But while they're selling it to you, they jack up the price by the full $25,000 that you're going to get on this tax. Well, wait a minute. I didn't get the whole tax credit. So it, it right. protects the fossil fuel industry because it limits first the people that, who can benefit from it. And then it raises the prices, so it makes solar that much more expensive. You want the price of solar panels to be cheaper. A solar panel is made of the same materials as a laptop computer, and yet a laptop computer is cheaper than a solar panel. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't PG&E also have some issues um, as far as sort of forcing you to stay on the grid, or if you use not enough solar, you get kicked off the grid? I know there's been some issues with that as well. (laughs) PG&E limits the amount of solar that you can put on your roof. You can only put solar on your roof that equals the amount of electricity that you use. They are limiting you to personal use, just like medical marijuana. They're treating Mm -hmm. it like a narcotic. That's ridiculous. And, of course, first you have to put a new roof on there because you can't put your right. solar system on your old roof, so you have to upgrade, buy a new roof. There's $20,000 right there for a new roof. I want equal parity in the marketplace. If mm-hmm. When you look around the neighborhood, you see most of the solar installs, they only cover about 20% of the u- uh, rooftop. That's how much people are going to use in a year. What about the rest of the roof? You already had to pay for mm-hmm. the install and the, all the infrastructure and the converter, the inverter to convert from DC to AC. Why not put more solar on there? So PG&E limits it to personal use, thus benefiting the fossil fuel industry. So we all have to buy natural gas from Colorado to make electricity here in California instead of letting people put solar on their rooftops. So I want parity Mm. in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I want the coal companies to be limited to one in five lumps of coal that they pull out of the ground to be sold. The rest of it, they can just put in their back pocket and sit on it. It's ridiculous. So many laws protect the fossil fuel industry. They don't need yeah. protection. We need to no, stop don't. protecting the fossil fuel industry. We need our elected representatives to say those words. I can't find one elected representative that will say anything about the fact that they do nothing in Congress. They allow these laws that protect the fossil fuel industry, and they won't change them. We could have more wind and solar in California than we need. We could be exporting the electricity to Nevada and Oregon and Arizona. We wouldn't have to have any of the oil. That could all be shipped off someplace else, the natural gas, and they can make electricity someplace else with it. But we have plenty of wind and plenty of solar right here in this district. And, yes, if PG&E cuts you off the grid because you put on one extra solar panel, they should be fined. Yeah, they're clearly protecting their own interests. Um, and just to clarify, PG&E is, a pub, is not a uh, government utility. It's a private company. I'm lucky enough to still have DWP down here in L.A. Utility, you can call them a utility, but when they make company policy that then gets rubber-stamped and approved by the 
PUC, the Public Utilities Commission in California, what's the difference between a corporatocracy and the government? Um, we're all getting screwed. I mean, if my neighbor across the street put on more solar, then that's less natural gas that we're importing and burning from someplace else. Yeah, because now you get into the problem where you have regulatory capture. So a lot of the folks that sit in the government bodies that are supposed to be regulating these industries are actual revolving door industry employees. So, you know, they might as well be self-regulating at this point. It's a disaster, you know, and we can go back to the days when we had that problem with Enron bidding up our energy. Hey, John. The regulatory is all in a big concern about is we're wheeling power out of California. He just steals money from California to the tune of a million Can we rephrase that? Okay. He arbitrages the California market to the tune of a million bucks or two a day. soon discovered that by shutting down power plants, they could create artificial shortages that would push prices even higher. Hey, uh, this is David up at Enron. Uh-huh. There's not much uh, demand for power at all, and we're, if we shut it down, could you bring it back up in three or four hours? Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you just go ahead and shut her down, then, if that's okay? I want you guys to get a little creative okay. and come up with a reason to go down. Like a forced outage type thing. Right. Those guys, at the flip of a switch, could just yank the California economy on its leash whenever they wanted to, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they never seem to step back and say, wait, is what we're doing ethical? Is it in our best long-term interests? Does it help us if we totally rape California? Does that advance our goals of nationwide deregulation? Instead, they sought out every, every loophole they could in order to profit from California's misery. You know, uh, the roots of privatization in the state and also in the country and they have neoliberal roots. These are Democrats that have sold us out. It's not just the Republicans. They they sort of adopted the neocon principles in the same and that sent them down the same path. And it's been a disaster for us. Um, so yeah, the solar thing I think is is really big for our state because we tend to be more environmentally friendly. But this is the stuff that's going on here. And let's talk a little bit about foreign policy. Um, do you have any strong opinions on the disaster that we currently have in Libya? One of seven countries which Cheney and Rumsfeld put forth a long time ago called regime change policy. Basically, right. it was a marketing plan to create endless war and drive tremendous lucrative profit into war profiteers, which they are mm -hmm. beneficiaries of, stockholders of, as are their cronies. And um, it's an amazing policy that no one in 18 years is challenged. 18 years. The Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and every single incumbent Congress member has not challenged regime change policy. I ask you to turn to another uh, country in the Middle East, uh, Libya. Uh, clearly, the U.S. backed uh, 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 a move into Libya. The regime change, the execution of uh, Gaddafi, uh, has left, in essence, a failed state there. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what's happened there and also the impact on all of uh, North Africa as a result of the situation in Libya right now. Well, you know, the story in Libya is not dissimilar to the story in in, in Iraq with Saddam Hussein or with Syria, which we've just been talking about. You know, the problem is these are all divided societies, politically divided. To some extent, of course, the ethnic and uh, uh, question of tribe should play a role. But they are 
politically divided societies to assume somehow that in each of these societies there's one bad guy who everybody hates is the most simplistic understanding of the Middle East. And the United States, you know, through NATO, conducted a regime change operation inside Libya, just as they did in Iraq. In both instances, when the strongman was captured, when, when Saddam was captured, when Gaddafi was captured, what they said to their captors is very revealing. They said, we are ready to negotiate. And the United States essentially was not interested in negotiating. You'll remember when Gaddafi was essentially lynched on the streets of, of Sirte, Hillary Clinton heard the news and, and laughed and said, we came, we saw, we killed, you know, we conquered. Um, this kind of attitude to countries like Libya, to Syria, to Iraq, means you underestimate the whatever support these people have, you underestimate the divided nature of these societies. And the regime change operation in Libya not only has continued with the destabilization of Libya, but it's destabilized Mali, it has threatened Tunisia, it has, of course, created problems in much of northern Africa. Why are we paying for that? It's ridiculous. And nobody's asking. In 2018, nobody's asking. We're at war in just as many places now as we were back in 2003, 2004, when a few peace candidates came up and people asked if you were a peace candidate and they voted for peace candidates. Nobody's even right. asking. Well, I think a lot of the Democrats entirely tuned out during the Obama administration because if they'd been paying attention, they would have known that the seven countries that were on Trump's Muslim ban are the countries that he'd been drone bombing for eight years. So, yeah, no, Obama most definitely did not stop the war machine um, as we had hoped, and that was kind of a disappointment for me. But what, what, what's frightful about Libya at this point is you have a full-fledged slave trade that's going on there now. It seems to me every time we go in and we institute some sort of re regime change, what comes next is worse. Um, and I don't think Syria is any different at this point. And I sort of was a little bit floored by the fact when Trump was bombing Syria a couple weeks ago, you had a lot of the Clintonites come out and be like, well, now we have a madman bombing Syria instead of a sane woman. And it's like, really? That's the difference between our foreign policy is that guy's crazy and our person's sane? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that. Um, so what would your opinion That's be on a great place. Syria? That is a great, that is a great place to begin with that, that it is insane okay. policy, whether the insane guy is doing it or the not, a not insane person is doing it. Exactly. The policy is insane, and mm -hmm. everybody's a fool for not standing up and resisting it. It is a huge waste of money. It is funneling money into the back pockets of a few people who can buy Congress. And mm -hmm. if we don't fight back, who will? I mean, look at your mm -hmm. paycheck stub. Look at the biggest deduction that's coming out of your paycheck every two weeks and stand up and fight back. Tell them you're not going to take it anymore. Tell them you don't want the incumbents spending the money the way they're spending it now. And that's the incumbents in Congress. That's Congress' responsibility. They hold the purse strings. They're rubber stamping mm -hmm. and endorsing every single thing that the administration, whether it's Bush, Obama, or Trump, is doing wrong. They rubber stamp it and pay for it. And right. if we don't get rid of our incumbents and challenge them, to do a better job for us, then we're not going to fix it. We become part of the problem if we don't do anything. 
Yeah, you know, it almost seems as if the permanent war economy that we were warned about back in the 60s has come to pass. Because... Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Because I don't see any end in sight. And both parties just, you're right, they keep rubber stamping all of these regime changes. And they, what bothers me the most is they keep lying about humanitarian reasons. Yep. They try to, you know, and it's like the faulty intelligence oh, time and time again. And I don't understand why so many Americans continue to listen to this stuff and not question it. So the way to get to this is we're going to have to wean ourselves off of it. And the way mm -hmm. we wean ourselves off of it is we tackle the lucrative aspects. We tackle the fact that it's so bloody profitable. And we just draw a line and say, no, it's not going to be profitable anymore. You're not going to lay off any employees. You're not going to make the profit you made in, in the past. You're not going to pay any money to the executive, the marketing department, the sales team. That, those money, you're not going to pay for the NASCAR sponsorship anymore. We're going to tackle right. this at the root cause. You guys are the problem. You're influencing foreign policy in a bad way. So it's, it, it's been done already. Trump did this. He stepped forward and he looked at the cost of Air Force One and he said, I'm going to cut it in half. Then he goes over and he looks at the Lockheed F-35 and he says, I'm going to cut that in half. And nobody complained. It wasn't on the news at all. Nobody said that's a problem. Well, that's what he's doing. He's taking the profit out of war profiteering. So they're making less money, 
every employee stays employed, they're still producing the product. So if you cut the cost, what's the first thing that the Department of Defense is going to do? Buy more, right? So you cut the price mm-hmm. in half and they're buying more. So there's plenty of equipment. The, there's no risk to our existing service members. They get all the safety gear that they need. They get all the best equipment that they need. But we're weaning the investments, the Wall Street machine, and the profitability out of the process. And when we take that out of the process, they'll no longer have the ability to fund their lobbyist efforts, to fund the congressional campaigns, to keep reelecting people that support ridiculous amounts of money going to them. And then Mm -hmm. the demand for international interference and disrupting other economies and invading other countries and supplying weapons to both sides and will all fade away and it'll disappear like the Kodak film industry. Where did it go? (laughs) Yeah, I was at one time a shareholder of Kodak. That's so funny. Um, So broadband is a big deal in your area. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that um, and your stances on net neutrality. Um, my apologies for my bad connection now. Yes, we do have <laughs> issues. And, uh, net right, neutrality... apologies for my bad <laughs> Net neutrality is extremely important. I, that's one of the items that I've been a legislative advocate for for some time. Um, we don't need to be charged more for specific websites. We don't need to be throttled back on our access mm-hmm. to things. We need greater access to things. Um, we definitely yeah. need greater access to the work that our representatives are doing in Washington, D.C. And that, that's, that's one of the big things that I'd like to do for everyone is I build financial systems for Fortune 500 companies. And these systems, they hold executives accountable. So when there's mismanagement, when there's fraud, when they're making just bad decisions, that information mm-hmm. comes out and it's reported throughout the company. That's exactly what we need in Washington, D.C. so that Voters can hold their representatives accountable 365 days a year, not just on election day. We need to have full visibility to the work that they do without having to do a freedom of information request. So everybody who's getting money from the telecom companies, we need to see that on a regular report, whether it's lobbyist money or campaign contributions. And along with all that lobbyist money, we should see the request. What are they asking for when they send that money in? So... It's huge amounts of money. What AT and T paid uh, what four or five hundred thousand to uh, <clears throat> the attorney for Donald Trump, Cohen. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, they they want to they want to get rid of net neutrality and they want to charge us more for the internet. And that's going to hurt us really bad in the rural economy where we already have really slow broadband and really um, poor bandwidth. It's bad. And always an interesting guest because she always talks about things that affect all of us. And uh, she is, of course, a commissioner on the California PUC. Michelle, it's true. Every time you come on, you've got something that I go home and I go, I'm really worried about that now that Michelle <laughs> brought it up. You know, something new. Anyway, but one of the things, the project now is services, the, the new services you're trying to get throughout California to the rural areas, right? Broadband services. That's right. Yeah. Um, one of the things we're really concerned about is that we've realized that in a lot of the rural areas of California, and by that I mean, you know, the far north, the coastal, a lot of the Central Valley, and then down in San Bernardino and the inland uh, region, 
we do not have very fast internet service, and we call that broadband right. at the California PUC. So we did something very nation-leading in December, and we passed a new fund called the California Advanced Service Fund that will help bring broadband to these rural areas that either have no broadband at all or they have only very slow broadband by one provider so that we can give everybody a better broadband experience. Okay, and this is uh, what we're paying a nickel? We're going to uh, pay a nickel a month, is that it? Or? That's right. It'll come out to be a nickel a month for an average telephone user on their uh -huh. bill for two years. Okay, so and that'll raise about $100 million. Okay, so if I put a nickel a month in, which will be automatic, be taken out of there, somebody in Thule Lake <laughs> will get broadband service whether they want it or not. That's correct. And the reason right? is yeah. broadband is important. A yeah. lot of government services are starting to be delivered over broadband. Right. Um, it's very important for education. Kids need the Internet to do their homework. And we also think that it's a matter of economic development for a lot of these rural communities. You do have to fight back. It's tougher in your area. The, the speeds in the, is slower. The connections aren't as good. Uh, it's clearly a problem. And our incumbent doesn't care. It's one of the biggest issues. That he just At town halls, he just walks away. He says, you know, I've heard this before. <laughs> and he just doesn't. You know, that's amazing. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in uh, that the Internet should be treated as a utility because I think it is that important to everyday life and safety and everything else. Um, it's replaced the phone system. It's replaced these things. So it should be regulated as such. That's, that's my strong opinion on it. Were you – so you, the area you're in, um, to give a little background for folks that don't live in California, you know, obviously we've had some drought years and we've had uh, water issues. Um, there were all, also issues where uh, in Kern County you had a couple of very wealthy 1% uh, farm factors that were taking the water out from underneath the water table. It was a group that was sounded like a government body, but it's actually private investors. Some people gave a tip to Public Citizen, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization about what appeared to be some shady water deals going on in, in Central Valley of California. You know, the first thing I did was I looked up the current water bank online. You know, Google was in its early years, more or less, 2003. Well, it turns out it's largely controlled by something called Roll International. And when I called their headquarters and asked to speak to a public relations person, they said they didn't have one. I said, well, to whom should I address any research questions? They said, we don't give information to the public. We suggest you don't research us and hung up. So I drive down to Bakersfield and then follow the directions out to the address. And I'm a little bit confused because the sign outside says Paramount Farming Company, not Kern Water Bank Authority. Walk in the front door and ask a receptionist, um, is the Kern Water Bank, do you know where that office is? Oh yeah, they're just down the hall. They said, it's like, Okay, the Kern Water Bank is a supposedly public entity, and the members are a number of different water districts, water agencies, water storage districts, and also a private company called Westside Mutual Water Company, LLC. And I remember asking, who are they? Well, they're landowners. Well, who, what land do they own? Well, they represent their own land. They didn't want to mention the name Paramount Farming, which was notable considering where we were sitting which was inside Paramount's office building. It seemed as if this is a case of extremely valuable public property 
um, an essential element of the state public water system, which had essentially been given to a very wealthy private uh, company. And I know, um, like in Tulare, for example, they had absolutely no water for a while, and they had to have water trucks come in and deliver water. Has any part of your district been affected by that? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, District 1 is a primary source of water um, for areas throughout California. So the, um, the large uh, water contractors have purchased uh, contracts from the beginning of time, and it supplies the farmland throughout Southern California. So that water mm -hmm. is going down there now through the California Aqueduct, and they're thirsty and they want more. And yeah. there is a government uh, project, federally sponsored project, to raise the Shasta Dam right now. The first $20 million has been allocated to just do the initial pre-building assessments and put together the drawings and the plans and uh, pre-engineering, that type of thing. So it's uh, there's numerous sites in the area that are slated for potential new dam sites, and it's it's a mistake in my viewpoint. I have several mm -hmm. agreements with um, candidates and incumbents in the south central uh, San Joaquin Valley to build reservoir water storage and aquifer restoration in that area. Okay. And we need to put pressure on recipients of all the water, which is a public trust in California, to start moving toward more um, water-saving methods of irrigation. A small right. portion of farms are moving towards drip irrigation systems. The majority of farms throughout California are still on flood irrigation, and it's wasteful. Right. It's wasteful on the farm. It's expensive for them, and it does not improve their crop yield. It's just a smaller investment on their part, and we need to get away from that. They lose way too much water to evaporation. They lose way too much water to runoff, which takes away all the fertilizers and pollutes the rivers downstream from there. So it's a huge issue, and it's really important, and we need every single California voter to get smarter on this issue and stand up against the incumbents who are letting this type of thing go on. And it's ridiculous to keep pulling the water away from other areas and bringing it in when the local area needs to be far more efficient in their water usage, in their water storage. <clears throat> and that's where the problem lies. Yeah, you know, it's, it was, it's a really bad situation because one of, the, um, one of the folks that was responsible for this owns the pomegranate company Palm Wonderful. And mm -hmm. there was this insane um, documentary that I saw on Netflix that kind of took the whole thing apart. Away from that goodness and light is a methodic, strategic use of his wealth designed to ensure that his political interests are properly lubricated. A look at the public record of his campaign donations suggests not an ideology-driven gift-giving scheme, but instead a thoughtful understanding that politicians and regulators change. So anyone who might be in a position to be helpful with his business problems seems to get a Resnick donation, a profit-driven side that some may say is more darkness than light. 
um, sucking out of the water table underneath. So they were stealing water that didn't belong to them. It was water that was from, you know, a long ways away. And they were using it to grow crops that were not drought friendly in an area that's pretty much desert. And they didn't care and nobody was stopping it because, you know, they had plenty of um, politicians that were involved in the same sort of scheme that was set up. Anyways, it was very eye-opening for me to hear about this. I mean, I knew Nestle had been a problem for years and that they had been taking water, but this was a whole other level of, wow, you're kidding me with this. So what other parts of your platform are, are important to you that we haven't discussed? Uh, do you support tuition-free public university? Um, absolutely. I support um, public education from pre-kindergarten um, through um, graduate school. It's important that we make those investments on the whole. And I guess I've been a little bit taken aback uh, by some of the information that's coming through in terms of uh, students living in poverty. But, you know, that just mm -hmm. doesn't seem right. Um, maybe you need a little help down at the financial aid department because um, the majority of students are benefiting from financial aid. Um, but that said, absolutely, uh, we need to make sure that we're regulating some of the private institutions that Betsy DeVos is excusing now that have been ripping off students for some time. The schools need to be accountable to the students, and they need to publish information in terms of hiring and what students are doing after they graduate. And that's kind of hit and miss. And that's where the economic investment um, takes place and takes root for each individual is, what's this degree going to get me? Where will I be able to land a job? What's that job going to pay? That's what really mm -hmm. matters. So um, <clears throat> absolutely, I support that. So do you, in your district, you probably have a lot of minimum wage workers, and the fight for 15, I think, would be a big issue as well. Is that something that's uh, popular in your district? Absolutely. And um, for me, I'm kind of, I am the extreme progressive Democratic candidate in this race. And, you know, fight for 15 is good. It's the right idea. But it really doesn't get to the root cause. And the root cause is... So many corporations are squeezing more and more out of their employees and pushing the money into the executive department. They mm -hmm. are trying to make their strategic competitive advantage poverty wages, and that's ridiculous. We need to tie increases in compensation to the lowest line of workers in every business to the executive branch. So when the executive branch goes up, their wages go up. So that's the disparity and that's the problem. If we simply want to legislate afterwards the redistribution of wealth, it's really ineffective. We want to get after the problem at the core and stop the unfair distribution of wealth where individuals are being taken advantage of in the workplace by the executives that are pulling too much out. So that would be a going to the root cause and that would be solving the problem. And, of course, in lieu of that, if we're simply raising the wages of everybody, then, of course, all the wages go up from there. But we're really not getting to the root cause, and we're really not solving the problem until we get into the organization and create the incentives to prevent that wealth gap initially. I mean, obviously, when you buy goods and services from a company, you're buying goods and services from everybody in that organization. And the frontline mm -hmm. employees are the most important. So we need right. the consumers to be aware as well 
and move away from companies that are pushing towards poverty wages. Don't go yeah. to Walmart. Boycott Walmart because they push poverty wages and that's how they make all their money is by squeezing more and more out of the individual employee and putting it in their back pockets. We have to learn to resist that and push back the right. other way. Yeah, clearly the income inequality is a bigger issue than unemployment. You know, you look at the unemployment rates and on the surface they look fine, they look low, but they, A, they don't account for people that have fallen off the unemployment to begin with. So there's people out there that have no longer collected unemployment that aren't being included in that number. But I think the more disturbing thing is the income inequality. When you look at that, it's frightful. You have folks making less money now than they did 20 years ago, but the cost of living is clearly higher, especially in California. Um, affordable housing is another big problem. Um, do you have a problem with affordable housing in your district? I don't know if that's... We have a tremendous amount of homelessness in our district. So absolutely, and it's directly related to employment, mm -hmm. long-term unemployment, the fact that stepping into entry-level employment doesn't pay well and doesn't create a path to progression and the ability to earn a living, that's a problem. Right. Absolutely, we need to it's address it. And it's, been, it's been ignored for far too long. Right. You know, so, for example, in Los Angeles, it, our minimum wage here is $15, and that's not enough. I mean, I know I can understand on the federal level why, while in some areas that would be more than adequate, in, in L.A. it's just not enough. The average rent here, or not even average rent, but just to get like a studio apartment, is going to cost $2,200, $2,300 a month. Do the math. If you're making $15 an hour, you can't afford that. How are you going to pay for food and everything else? I mean, so it's uh, wages have absolutely not kept pace with inflation or production. Um, the, the companies have absolutely rigged the system. When we talk about how we have a free market in this country, we don't have a free market. We have a rigged market. And when you have employees that work at places like you mentioned, Walmart, that their wages are so low, they're, co they're collecting food stamps. I mean, that's insane. If somebody works a full-time job, they should be able to pay for rent and put food on their so, table. And we're not, we're not talking so about skilled labor. I'm one. saying the basic. So that would be step one for the federal government is we're passing out the social safety net to these people that are full-time employees of a big corporation we should add up all that money and send Walmart an invoice. Here, this is the compensation <laughs> yes. that your employees need yes. to live. Pay your bill. Pay it today. That's right. Stop taking all the money out the top, <laughs> putting it in your back pocket. Pay your employees enough to live or pay this bill so that they can get by. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And everybody's David, putting up with it. That. Nobody's doing enough to stop the problem. Nobody's going after the root cause of the problem here. That's right. We have, I love it. Tremendous, we have tremendous gains in productivity, in manufacturing, and in office management as well. We're moving to more and more automation. Those gains in productivity hit the bottom line of companies. They're operating more efficiently, more profitably, with fewer employees. And the problem is only the executives take advantage of that. Only the executives right. get to increase their compensation through the roof. Mm -hmm. Executives are making 34 to 100 times more than the frontline employees, and they don't add that much value to the company. That's the problem. Right. They take right. all the benefits, and they don't add the value. Executive branch is the worst performing department of all. 
you know, you've got your sales, your operations, your finance, your HR. The executive branch is the least, the worst performing performance of all departments. They take, 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 and they don't add value. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um, what is your opinion on universal basic income? Is that something you've looked into? So that's kind of, you know, realizing that, hey, what's going on here as we improve productivity? And that has been proposed as a solution. Just put money back into the economy and give it to people. Um, it, it's an idea, um, but I, I'd really like to favor moving towards giving everybody the opportunities that they need to find gainful employment, to do something that, that's meaningful for them, that allows them to be productive. I think that we're, we're missing that opportunity. And ultimately, the, you know, the, the universal, um, the basic, yeah, the basic income, it, it's, it's kind of a social safety net type of thing. And I think that we're not getting to the core problem if we simply go right to that and put a Band-Aid on it. The core problem is helping people migrate from old jobs, old industries, old skill sets into new jobs, new skills, and putting them to work. And there's lots of opportunity for more work to be done. It's just that we haven't put our resources into that. And if we put our resources into that and identified more work to be done and started assign, you know, letting people match themselves and their skill set to more work to be done, then that would be a good thing. And I would like to see that primarily in the private sector. That should be the definite direction. I mean, there's definitely organizations, um, especially in District 1, where public sector they need more help, and they cut back and cut back, and, and they skimp on things, and things go undone. Um, and they, you know, they manage to their budget type of thing, and so things go undone. But if we put the investment in and identify projects that are worthwhile and long-term and then start matching people to it, we have an opportunity for growth. So... Um Okay, so I don't have a strong opinion either way on this, but let me play devil's advocate for a second. Uh, I think a lot of the argument behind the universal basic income is this is for areas where there are no other jobs, that maybe manufacturing sector was huge and those jobs have disappeared and they're not coming back, et cetera. Um, what about, what do we do with those folks? I mean, if we don't supply them with a universal basic income and do you force them to move to an area where there's jobs? I mean, I don't know what this looks like. I'm not really sure. Well, I think um, people do move, and people move quite a bit, and you move because you want to retire up to the beautiful, you know, District 1 and the Sierra Hills <laughs> of uh, this area, and you move because you, you go off to college, right? And you went to university, and you wanted to travel, and you pursue different job opportunities. And so I think both are a way of life for all of us, and, you know, some of us make those miles in a weekend and, you know, weekend warriors just to get away from the rat race at work if you're, you know, in a, in a busy area to come to the more rural areas. So that's kind of a constant. Um, but going to what you were asking in terms of what about when the whole industry goes away, like the coal industry, mm -hmm. hey, yeah, the number one thing they need to do in the coal industry is restore the land and restore the environment because they're just surrounded by pollutants and they've contaminated their water 
That's the mm-hmm. number one place that work needs to be done. And guess who I want to pay for that? Corporations that took the coal out of the ground. That's number one. And mm-hmm. that's one of the most important things for those folks to work on. And after that, there's a lot of opportunity in coal country for wind and solar. And there is, we, have, we are nowhere near hitting limits on the capacity for what we can use in terms of wind and solar generated electricity. So mm-hmm. there is, at this point in time, it looks like an infinite amount of wind and solar to be installed before us. So there's yeah, you know, opportunities also, there. There will be, yeah. I think there will be some new jobs coming up. And also a lot of these areas uh, have tourism in them. So I think restoring the environment makes sense from that perspective as well. Yeah, um, uh, both coal country and uh, California District 1, we are huge recreational areas and we have a lot of visitors. It is a yeah. um, big industry for us. And there are lots of opportunities. And specifically in the North State, there are many areas where um, we've lost wildlife habitat. We've lost the mm-hmm. natural flow of rivers. We've lost the salmon run. Restoration of right. that area is a fantastic investment. It improves the environment. It makes the area more livable. It's better for the wildlife. And it's a tremendous area where we can invest in new jobs. Yeah, no, uh, environment's a big uh, issue for me, so I agree with that. And it doesn't make any sense at this point. But they're being protected by their bot congressmen and regulatory capture. That's, that's the bottom line there. So if somebody wants to donate to your campaign that's listening to this, where is the best place for them to do that, David? Um, I have a crowd pack out there, and uh, I have you know, various links via Twitter and Facebook to get to that. Um, and they can always... Uh, Send a mail by mail contribution. Um, address is 111 Bank Street, number 328, Grass Valley, California, 95945. And what's your Twitter handle? At Hold Congress Accountable. It's spelled H O L D, Congress with one S, and Accountable is abbreviated A C C T. 